All right, this evening, um, we're going to start, we're going to do Walter Kaufman. And I need to first say hello to my nieces, who apparently have been listening to this, to Delaney, Madison, Kennedy, and Lauren out there in the universe someplace. So I did not know they had been listening, but they have been, so hello to them. Uh, but Walter Kaufman, if you've ever read Nietzsche, you almost certainly know Walter Kaufman because he was the prime translator, commentator, annotator, sort of scholar who did a whole bunch of work on Nietzsche immediately after World War II. Now, what's important about that is it's historically, if you put a historical perspective, if you went to Europe in 1907, 1908, 1910, 1911, and you said, well, where's the most intellectually, artistically, culturally, scientifically advanced country? Who really has civilization going on? Almost invariably, the people would have said, oh, Germany. Germany is, is the country that has it going on. You know, they, it, it, it's that these, you know, they've got the music, they have the art, they have poetry, they have literature, they have the philosophers, Germany, not to mention the scientists, all over the place, right? So this, this, is, this, is, this is where everything is happening. By the time you get to the end of World War II, sort of an own goal on German civilization, right? Is it was, they, they destroyed not just millions of people, their own country, a lot of other people's countries, but they destroyed an entire cultural ideal. Uh, I believe it was Jean-Francois Lyotard, the French critic, who said, the Germans have killed the German language. No one is going to study German. This is this, this, it's off the map. No one is going to read German philosophers. The, the whole idea that they had a civilization is, is, has been destroyed in the flames of, of what had been wrought, particularly in World War II. Of course, this is slightly unfair because many of the people who were killed by the Nazis were precisely the people who had been responsible for maintaining that civilization. When the, when the Nazis invaded Vienna, they had a list of people to kill, and at the top of the list were a lot of German writers, intellectuals, comedians, many of them uh, German-Jewish writers, intellectuals, and comedians. So you would think they would go in and kill the mayor and the senators, and no, the first people the Gestapo and the sort of thugs went after were the, were the intellectual elites, the people who had been trying to hold up the, that, that branch of civilization. That's what they wanted to burn down. And so you get to the end of World War II, Nietzsche, of all philosophers, was dead in the water. And a gentleman in the 30s who wrote a book called What Does Nietzsche Mean? This is, he wrote it before World War II, said in the introduction, I can't remember his name all of a sudden, uh, said in the introduction, I just want to do this brief overview of Nietzsche's works because it will take a lifetime scholarship to rehabilitate him. The person who did that lifetime of scholarship was Walter Kaufman. And he was uniquely placed to do this. Born in Germany and was it, whatever it says here, uh, 1921. Born in 1921. When he was 11, he was born in Lutheran family, German Lutherans, uh, he decided he could not believe in the Trinity. <laughs> he couldn't figure out how the three gods and the one thing, it really threw him off. He decided that was no good. So he went shopping around and he discovered that, hey, 
the Jews did not believe in this Trinity nonsense. They were people with one God that was one, not one God that was three that was one. Um, so he came to his parents and said, well, I'm going to convert to Judaism. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to convert to Judaism. And they're like, ooh, really? 1933, 1932, not the best time to convert to Judaism. Plus, it turns out that they were converted Jewish family that his grandparents and some of his uncles were in fact Jews uh, and had maintained their tradition of, of the Jewish church and believed it. And, and so he became converted uh, to Judaism, which he then not too long thereafter converted out of. Uh, but he did pass through this. Um, in 1939, he and some other members of his family fled Germany, moved to the United States for obvious reasons. Uh, those members of his family that didn't flee, several of them were killed uh, by the Nazis. But he arrives in the United States, and he studies philosophy as an undergrad. Uh, and then he had the opportunity to go straight to graduate school, but instead he worked for the intelligence service and fought in Europe on the European front for 15 months, obviously having someone who's perfectly literate and fluent in German is a big help uh, at that point. So he's an intelligence officer with the military, comes back to the United States after the war, enrolls in Harvard, finishes his PhD in about two years, which is pretty good. And the person he's working on is Nietzsche. And because Einstein was at Princeton at that time, there, the story goes that he ran into Einstein. And Einstein said, oh, young man, you know, what are you working on? And he said, oh, I'm working on Nietzsche. And Einstein said, well, how horrible for you. <laughs> right? And, and this is the idea. This was the concept of Nietzsche that um, Walter Kaufman began working against. And so his attempt to salvage Nietzsche and bring him forward, not to defend him so much as to say, here's what Nietzsche said, now let's judge him fairly. He, he, he did like Nietzsche. He was a, sort of a promoter, but he was more like, let's at least judge him accurately. Um, and this really, I think, sets the tone for his life of someone who is willing to do whatever to him seemed necessary and good. So I want us to first start with a quote, and then we'll kind of go through his work that will set the tenor of this. Um, this quote is the first quote on the front page there. Um, Let people who do not know what to do with themselves in this life, but fritter away their time reading magazines and watching television, hope for eternal life. The life I want is a life I could not endure in eternity. It is a life of love and intensity, suffering and creation that makes life worthwhile and death welcome. There is no other life I should prefer. Neither should I like not to die. Um, so he would, this, I, think, is, I love this quote from him because he was like, look, you live. Life is to be lived. Not surprisingly why he likes Nietzsche so much, but this, he really had this fervent desire to work and to live and to experiment and try things, and it came out in his work. So the degree to which we've remembered Kaufman is as a Nietzsche scholar. And his contribution there was huge. And so we'll talk about that. But I also want to talk about many of the things that he contributed that we've forgotten that would be better to remember, I would say. Um, so as a Nietzsche scholar, before Kaufman comes along, it's important to remember Nietzsche was uh, mentally disabled for the last you know, decade, roughly, of his life. And his sister, a very sort of nasty individual, took over his works. And Nietzsche sort of lost his mind right when his fame starts to take off. And so she moved in, and she was a super Nazi. She was an Aryan racial supremacy whole thing. And so she 
began editing his work, withholding his works and notes and letters, having special commentaries written for his works, redacting them. So the version of Nietzsche's works that people were reading from 1890 to 1930s, basically, were versions that were specifically edited, often for Nazi consumption, by Nazis. It was a complete misrepresentation. So that he was presented as, as promoting the Aryan Superman, when already in the 1870s, he's saying racial, we need to intermarry races. That's the best possible thing. This whole racial ideal is dead. Now, this is still somewhat controversial today, but in the 1870s in Germany, it was not a popular view at all. And so there's a gross misrepresentation of what he was trying to do. And so Kaufman, after the war, says, one of the things I want to do is rehabilitate Nietzsche. And so the book he writes, uh, not too long, he did lots of other scholarly things, but the sort of more popular work he did, um, I list on the back there, which is uh, Nietzsche, Philosopher, Psychologist, Antichrist. Um, and it's an excellent review, because it gives sort of a biography of Nietzsche and an overview of his works in one relatively brief book. It's not a huge, thick tome that's going to, you know, uh, eat your mind. It's not incredible. He's a, Kaufman believed in clarity and directness. Kaufman also had the advantage of being perfectly literate in German, and therefore he could do his own translations, because many of the translations that had been done were either not very good or misleading or inconsistent in the way they use language, which created all kinds of problems. He also was the first generation of uh, scholars to have access to basically Nietzsche's archives. So now he could actually read the letters. And, and other scholars that he, he relied on could also read the memoirs, could read the notes. All of this was available. So not only he was well-placed because Nietzsche wasn't popular, he had the German, and scholars for the first time had access to sort of everything Nietzsche had done without you know, all of the damage that, that had been laid over the top of it. And so he produced a series of translations and interpretations that moved Nietzsche from the margins as sort of a racist, nationalist, demagogue, nut job to a much more, I would say, accurate presentation of him, which was a, you know, anti-racist, uh, anti-nationalist, anti-militarist nut job, right? I mean, sort of, sort of a complete, uh, 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 you know, transformation there. Um, and there's, a, and, the, and so he brought, which is an amazing achievement. If he ever, if, if Kaufman did nothing else, to bring a thinker of the caliber of Nietzsche uh, out of that sort of shadows, out of that misleading. Um, mirror in which he had been placed so that we could judge its merits, of which there are a great many in his works, uh, and revive that and save it. It's almost as if he had dug up a lost work of Socrates or of Plato. Uh, well, it wouldn't be Socrates, I guess, a lost work of Plato or Aristotle, and represented it and said, look, here it is. Now let's reread it and see what it means. So this is a major, it's just a huge achievement. Uh, and, and by the way, important, not just in English, but he was influential uh, in Germany as well. His interpretation actually went back to the German language because uh, he did such good work on Nietzsche. So this is one of the main reasons we remember him, if we remember him at all. Pretty much, as far as I can tell, almost everything else he did has been forgotten. 
And he did lots that I think is worth remembering. And so I just wanted to, again, like with Barzon, go through some of this. Um, another work he did early on is called From Shakespeare to Existentialism. And what Kaufman was very intent on was this notion that philosophy, uh, and he was a philosopher, by the way, straight up philosopher. He, he taught philosophy at Princeton. Um, but he thought philosophy should be accessible, direct, um, and understandable, that it did not need to be all clouded and confusing and faux profound. And we'll talk about that as we move along the critiques that he does. But one of the things he starts with is he's in, in, um, from Shakespeare to existentialism. He says there's been this artificial division between uh, genres. So Shakespeare wasn't a philosopher, but it doesn't mean there's not a lot for us to learn from the Shakespearean outlook. And that he says when academics artificially narrow their outlook, we lose the grander perspective. And he thought we lost a lot more than we gained by being narrow and technical. He thought we ju you just lose too much when you do that. And so what he talks about there is he calls it the tragic world. He talks about a lot. But one of the ideas is he calls it the tragic worldview. And as the first quote I read suggests, he said, look, we're going to die. Life is a tragedy. There, fine. We all lose. However, you can die with nobility. You can die with greatness. You can fail with beauty. And that is what we really should be searching for. That, he says, is the tragic worldview. And he loved Shakespeare's take on this, because think of all of Shakespeare's tragedies. Generally, they're great and admirable people who fail. Hamlet, Lear, you know, Macbeth, even though they're flawed and imperfect, which is to say human, there's still something masterfully and powerful and noble about them. And the tragedy is that they're great in their failure. In fact, Kaufman goes so far as to argue that in the United States, you almost can't have tragedy because we don't believe in failure. Failure is failure. There's nothing good. A success is what is great. You can't fail nobly. It's impossible in the United States. He thought this is one of the things that we really lack. To, to, to live nobly, to achieve, and yet dying being the ultimate failure, but, but to, 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 in the end, go bankrupt, or, or have your business fail, or have something you tried to do not work out, to, to, to try and do something great and then have it just crash and die. So that is what makes nobility. That's what makes tragedy. And if you don't have the noble human, the striving, powerful, reaching for greatness, who falls, you can't have tragedy. And he says, this is the problem with Death of a Salesman, if people know this play. The, 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 it was an attempt to write a tragic play with a common man. Generally, this is how this play is interpreted. Willie, Willie Loman is the, is the lead character. And Kaufman was having none of it. He says, if you have an average person who doesn't try to do anything and fails, this is not a tragedy. This is just life. 
uh, he's very hard on this. He's very driven on this. He says, tragedy comes when you have someone superlative, someone amazing, someone transcendent who fails. That's what tragedy is. And if you have the power of tragedy, you need that element of nobility, of greatness, of, 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 of human transcendence that nonetheless fails. So he calls this a tragic worldview, and he says this extends to all kinds of things. He says all kinds of writers and artists and painters complain that they're underappreciated. They don't get the respect they deserve. The public doesn't you know, like them. And he says, you know, it's too bad. Then suffer. Are you better than Rembrandt? Are you better than Van Gogh? How about Beethoven? How about Mozart? Are you superior to them that you shouldn't have to struggle and suffer and die poor or friendless and deaf or with one ear or starving? Rembrandt practically starved to death. You know, it's hard to imagine. He says, no, A, your life is not nearly as hard as theirs, so just shut up. <laughs> and B, if you do a transcendent work, then you won't care. Hamlet doesn't care what the court thinks of him. Hamlet does not go around taking a poll of the major court elements and say, well, I've got 62% support for killing my, my, my stepfather, my stepfather uncle. I have 27% you know, undecided and 13% who think he's a great king. I'll talk to my advisors and see what the people would think was popular. We'll do a focus group and I'll get back to you. All of his monologues are interior. This is, this is one of the magic things that Shakespeare comes up with. The monologue we can hear inside the mind. He doesn't talk to anybody in the play. It's one of the most remarkable things about Hamlet. He talks to himself almost exclusively. He talks to the skull of Yorick almost. This is, his, this is who he talks to. The dialogue, the conversation, internal, because he doesn't care about the rest of them. It's me and the ghost. It's me and York's skull. It's me and my destiny. And Kaufman feels this is where tragedy comes from. The greatness, the power, the capacity of the individual when they strive and transcend. And he's just being consistent on this throughout, which is again why that quote is. If you want to watch TV and fritter your life, great. I don't care. That's your business. For me, I want to struggle, love, feel pain, suffer, and die. Right. What else are you going to do? So he lays this out very early. And a lot of this, by the way, comes from Nietzsche. This is, I mean, he was both an interpreter and reader of Nietzsche and influenced by him. Um, Next work, which I, if any of these, these are, I've sort of looked at his most readable ones. He wrote a spectacular amount. He's like bars on it. He just wrote an amazing amount. But these are the ones I would say sort of most accessible. All the Nietzsche stuff, but uh, these few works. Um, critique of religion and philosophy. And people know there's this new atheist movement, you know, uh, the God delusion, how God ruins everything. Read the critique of, of religion and philosophy and you'll realize how intellectually impoverished these works generally are. Here is a scholar of note who goes at religion with a hammer. 
He has no use for it, generally speaking. But he doesn't go at it generally. He says, what does Calvin say? What does Luther say? What did Aquinas say? What did the Pope say? What did Niebuhr say? What did Kierkegaard say? What did all these supposedly sophisticated, powerful thinkers say about this who, who claim to be religious? He doesn't want to attack average people. He says, I want to go at the, he says, I want to attack the people who, who have power, who have authority, who have position. I want to go after them and show the impoverished nature of their thought, of their capacity. And also so that when he quotes them, he's quoting the, the sort of the best and the brightest, not the average sort of run of the mill. Um, and, and he just, he, he goes at it with, it's, it's amazing. One of the examples he gives is, is people always say, well, can you have morality without religion? And his response is, you can't have morality with religion. <laughs> he just says, by the way, this is like 1961. He's saying you cannot have morality with religion for the simple reason that religious people don't agree about anything. And the whole point is, what are you going to base your moral principles on? You can't base them on religion because, which one, you have to choose a religion because there's you know, vast variation in what all the religions are saying should be right and just in what you do. Two, even within any given religion, there's an incredible variation in the meaning of, of, the, of the various interpretations of the moral necessity. For instance, I was just uh, looking at the Old Testament, which I don't recommend. Um, but if, if you are looking at the Old Testament, go to the Ten Commandments, of which there's about 80. Um, there aren't 10. There are not 10. I don't know where this idea comes from. There aren't 10 commandments. But it says, thou shalt not uh, sleep with your neighbor's wife. Don't commit adultery. Don't sleep with the husband's wife. No good. Okay, reasonable enough. And then like a couple of commandments later, it says, don't even think about sleeping with your neighbor's husband or wife, or his ox, by the way, don't covet the ox, which I always, the interpretation, the same word in Hebrew, so I think it's hilarious, well, anyway. Uh, the, but the idea is, that is a totally different ethical or moral imperative. One is, don't act inappropriately. Okay, that's perhaps achievable. Don't think inappropriate thoughts. I mean, this is George Orwell Big Brother territory. This is a completely different necessity if, for correct action. And if you think that that, by the way, and in the Christian and Jewish history, there has been a lot of argument that no, it is the not even thinking wrong thoughts that should be emphasized, then you're taking a, I mean, there's just a radically different view on what it means to be a decent person. By the way, Jimmy Carter said, he was asked, have you ever committed adultery? And he said, I have sinned in my heart. Wow. I have sinned, which means at some point, maybe he thought, the big new Zabrinsky looked really good in his bathing suit. I don't know. You know, he had some thought that he felt was not right. And, and if you read the commandments that way, then that's not okay. But, but, you know, Kaufman just makes the perfectly clear point. Because there is no agreement within religions or between religions on what is right and wrong, you, he says you cannot, you, by definition, you can't base morality on religion. 
which to me is a pretty good, you know, it's a pretty damning assault. And then he quotes, you know, the big people, not the small people, not the trivial people, to show this fundamental disagreement on every significant point. And, and he, you know, and he says, look, that's, this is just wrong. So that, that question is inappropriate. Um, so, and, and his writing, by the way, is very clear like that, consistently clear. Very rarely do you even encounter a, se- a sentence or two or three that, will, will, that you have to unravel. Now, the thought might be complicated, but his writing, very clear. So he's an incredibly lucid writer, and I don't think that can be emphasized enough, and we'll see why in a little bit. Um, after that, he wrote his sort of magnum opus, which is three volumes, so magnum opuses. Uh, it's one big work <clears throat> that is in three volumes, and it's called Discovering the Mind. And he makes this argument. Uh, it's a trilogy consisting of three books. The first book is called Goethe, Kant, Hegel. The second book is Nietzsche, Heidegger, Buber. The third book is Freud versus Adler and Jung. And what he argues in here, which is a wonderful argument, and it hasn't been really picked up so much, again, sort of forgotten, is he says, we learn, we discover what it means to be human. We discover the mind. We discover the capacities of the mind. And that is an ongoing process. And so that we learn from Goethe, we learn from uh, Nietzsche, we learn from Freud, both by their example and by their arguments, things that we didn't know before or hadn't internalized culturally and individually before. Hello. Uh, and those, those are important. Not in the sense that they said this, this, and this, and everybody said, yes, we agree with it, no, we don't agree with it, but in the influences of their examples. And so I'll go through some of this. By the way, notice this is all, these are all German language thinkers. This was his specialty, and he, he really, one of the ways to read his work is to say he was trying to salvage German civilization from the wreckage of those two wars. And he worked consistently at that. Because there is a lot there that, that is worth salvaging. And he didn't want, it's sort of one of the things, you know, the Nazis, besides everything else they destroyed, as I mentioned, were they going to destroy this intellectual heritage as well? You know, were we going to blame uh, Kant for uh, Dachau? It, it's not fair to Kant. Uh, he had plenty of other things that he did wrong, but he didn't do that. And so can we salvage what was there? And, and, and he, Kaufman really worked at this for his whole life. This was crucial to him. Um, so in Goethe, Kant, and Hegel, I'll give you just a brief overview of some of these. He, each of these has a hero, by the way. It's the first guy. So it's Goethe, hero. Kant, eh, Hegel, eh. Sort of that's, that would be the, the summary. And he says, Goethe's example was unparalleled. And in the German-speaking world, by the way, no one is close to as influential as Goethe, with the possible exception of uh, Luther. Right, that, that's it. I mean, Luther influencing the language and then Goethe. Luther influencing the culture and then Goethe. I mean, he is the man. He doesn't translate well. And so we're like, eh, who's that guy, Goethe? We've heard of him, but what does he mean? Um, but it, but the, one of the points, not the only one that Kaufman makes about Goethe, is that his example is what mattered. One, he was incredibly tolerant. And an age of intolerance. 
Towards when he was older, he actually ended up marrying his housemaid, which was not done. In fact, all the nobility, would, most of the nobility, stopped visiting him because you can sleep with him, you can have kids with him. We all know that's fine. But you don't marry them because they're lesser. You're the great man. He was famous basically his whole life, by the way. He, he, just, he was famous from very young. The most influential German writer when he was 22. He was the most influential German writer when he was 70. And he just kept influencing his entire life. So I mean, he had this long span of significant influence. And people admired him and respected him and looked up to him, visited him, wrote letters. Again, probably the most famous person in Europe during his lifetime. Um, Napoleon did not want to meet him. And the reason seems to be because he didn't want to be the second most famous person in the room. <laughs> he thought that, 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 that you know, Goethe would make him, people would be more interested in Goethe, and so he didn't want to be in the room with him. You know, this is, this is, this is true. I mean, this is historical. Um, so he says that but this example of tolerance, no meanness, no hatefulness, Self-contained. Everybody said that he was self-verstande. He, he stood in himself. He didn't need a title. He didn't need somebody else to tell him who he was. And they said people talked about it as being inspirational just to visit with him. He was also cosmopolitan, not a nationalist. In fact, he was an anti-nationalist at a time when it was really popular to be a German nationalist. In fact, they turned to him and they said, now... Germany is reunifying. We're liberating ourselves from, from uh, the empire. Now we're going to stand up as a nation. You write, write the epic, write the odes, write the articles, wave the flag. And he was like, I think this is a horrible thing. I'll have nothing to do with it. I'll see you. I'm off to Italy. Right? I mean, so he just, he, he just wanted that. And people couldn't believe this. The most famous German writer just systematically saying, no, I'll have nothing to do with this nationalism. I don't want it. Um, and, and this kind of influence of not just his ideas, hugely influential, but of his example, clarity of writing, clarity of thought, tolerance, broad-mindedness, cosmopolitanness, open to change. Then we go to Kant. Huh. Not the same. And he says the problem with Kant is his example. And you can't blame Kant entirely for this. But Kant's works are incomprehensible. In German, they are vastly more incomprehensible. Many of his sentences go on for pages. Think Faulkner writing on the critique of pure reason. It is this just, you can't, they literally are, they're ungrammatical. You can't unweave them. They don't make sense. Now, Kant, when Kaufman was writing, was one of the thinkers that people did say, well, at least, you know, that you're Kant, he's good. And Kaufman's like, no, Kant is terrible. Not that he didn't have a few good things to say, but he was covering up errors in his own thinking with the style of obscurantism. And, and because people couldn't unravel it, they thought, ooh, he must be profound and deep. And so his ideas must be great. He has official support of the institutions. So he's a genius. He's brilliant. And his writing just went downhill. 
The, 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 the more he wrote, the less good his writing got until it was truly ungrammatical, incomprehensible German. So when he gets translated, the translators have to artificially improve it because you can't just go blah, 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 blah for sentences in any language, right? You have to actually put some periods and commas and semicolons in and construct sort of grammatical thoughts. And so it's much more comprehensible in English than it is in German often, if not invariably. Not necessarily what Kant meant or wrote, but at least it makes sense of some kind. <laughs> um, and he says, this is another place where you have an example. Very narrow mind, very rigid person. And this style, the notion that deep thinking was lacks clarity, is obscuring, and is striving for absolute truth rather than broad-minded cosmopolitanness. He says, poisoned. That example, not necessarily what he argued, that's one kind of thing, but actually the example he said, oh, you want to be taken seriously as a philosopher? You must write thick tomes that no one can understand. And think of, think of what a change this is, by the way. This is a significant change. If you go back and look at many of the Greek writers, I mean, Plato just being the most obvious example, but that he's not the only one. Two guys walk into a bar, and one says, how much does a crow weigh? And the other one says, five pounds. And one says, no, three pounds. And then they argue about this. It's perfectly clear. You know what's going on. You might not agree with it. You might think, that's a terrible idea. But you know, you're like, oh, I like him. I don't like him. He's crazy. He's drunk. Right? You can track out what's going on. It's very clear. It's very human. Sometimes boring. Uh, but at least it's clear. Forget that. Get rid of that. Like I said, read any Socratic dialogue and then read anything by Kant, and you'll just think something has gone really wrong. But then Kaufman tracks out how that example really poisoned a lot, that this was a sort of new idea. So his example was a bad one, but still influential. And so the whole Discovering Mind series is this sort of exploration. Um, then he moves on to Nietzsche. Of course, he's written huge amounts about Nietzsche, who he contrasts with Heidegger. Uh, well, Heidegger is sort of his own counter-argument. I mean, he's just... Wow, third-rate human being. Uh, he had a few good ideas, though. This is the problem. You always have to come back. He did have some good ideas, but he was writing in Kant's style to, to defend himself against being able to be criticized. Um, and he was uh, a, a, just a horrible, racist, awful Nazi. Um, there's almost just no way around it. Uh, and, 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 but he, again, he was, he's in the tradition of Kant. And then, he, and then he talks about Buber as somewhere sort of in between. And then Freud versus Adler and Jung. And if anything is, is uh, sort of helpful to our thinking today, I think if you just read the Kaufman section on Freud, because he, his defense, if you want to call it that, is he said, look, we like to yell at Freud, and this is already you know, 40 years ago, we like to yell at Freud for all the mistakes he made. And he said, the first guy who climbs Everest made mistakes. Lots of people died trying to get up there. You don't do it clean. You get dirty. You fall in the mud. But he says, but let's look at what he did achieve. Let's look at what he did contribute. What are the new ideas that he either grew and fostered, brought into light, or actually originated? 
You know, notions like that what we take for granted now, that things that happen to you in your childhood influence you when you're an adult. This was Freud. The notion that talking about things and expressing them helps you explore them and deal with them. This is Freud. You know, th th this is, this is that, that notion that just sitting down and talking, which we must have all experienced, that sometimes you're just chatting, all of a sudden it dawns on you, oh, this becomes clearer, that falls into place, or the emotion shifts and you feel better. And he also says, you know, Freud, everybody accuses Freud of being obsessed with sex. Freud's defense of himself, which uh, Kaufman quotes, is that, look, when you live in a time when no one will talk about something, you must throw it in their face. This, this is the idea. If they're just going to avoid it and avoid it and avoid it, then at some point you have to say, no, we're going to talk about sex because it matters. It's not everything, it's not the whole world, but it matters. And he says, pressing these things to the fore for whatever he got wrong, whatever mistakes he made, he says, that is where you need to look for the credit and for the influence. And so he says a lot of things that we take for granted, we've actually forgot, came from Freud. And a lot of the things we criticized Freud for, it turns out, didn't in fact come from Freud. It's, 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 it's twofold. We've sort of taken what we like and we think is good and scrubbed his name out. And then the part that we don't like and we think is crazy, we've written his name in. And then we say, oh, that's Freud. And then he wants to compare him against uh, Adler and Jung, two, two of Freud's followers who break with him. Um, and, and in both cases, he argues, he thinks the break came primarily, and the letters are pretty clear, from Adler and Jung feeling overshadowed by Freud. And they wanted to do their own thing, of which Freud was perfectly fine. But he said, just don't call it Freudianism. Say you're doing your own thing. And so this little tension erupted. He really didn't like the direction Adler was going, but with Jung, he said he didn't like all this mythologizing stuff. And it's an interesting case, because clearly Jung was interested in the mythologizing stuff. This is what he really wanted to talk about. And Freud's like, I don't know. That's getting awful close to religious and mysticism again. And what I'm working, however fallibly at, is trying to get the mysticism out of how we think about how humans work, where our behaviors come from, where do our ideas and emotions and feelings come from, and how do those all interrelate? So Kaufman does a beautiful job of unweaving this and sort of representing the material and going, hey, this happened here. This is, these are the dates for this. This is not Freud's idea. This is somebody else's idea. And so in this discovering of mind series, uh, he has both what I think is a general great concept, the notion of trying to track where ideas and thoughts and cultural impulses come from, where are they discovered, how do they get introduced, how do they influence us, and, and putting them on individuals, and then actually you know, talking about how that worked at the level of the individual human being, how that influence spread, why did it get picked up, who promoted it. And at, at all of these works, the level of scholarship is astounding. It's not overwhelming. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't drown you in dates and facts and details. Maybe in footnotes. He does love the footnote, but you can skip those if you don't want to read them. Um, but you just realize that he's going back through the diaries, through the letters. This isn't a skim reading of half of a chapter of a Freud work. 
He's like, well, let's read everything that Freud wrote around this date so we can contextualize what was going on when he made this argument. And you go, oh, oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. Or, or you know, so these sort of, he does that with everybody to, a, to really an extraordinary degree. And by the way, there are other thinkers in these books as well, but these are the main nine that he tracks out. And then he kind of lays out the territory with other thinkers that he thinks is important about kind of how they fall in the land that he's scripted. The last work I want to talk about is called Faith of the Heretic. And after he'd written the Critique of Religion and Philosophy, um, I forget who it was, somebody wrote to him and said, look, it was too negative. You can't just go around throwing rocks at people. You, you ha I, that's my language. Uh, you have to actually build something. And so Kaufman said, you know, I I, I'll take that. Part of what he wanted to build is, is what you see in the Discovering the Mind series. And part of what he wants to build is you see in the faith of the heretics, uh, faith, the faith of a heretic. It's a beautiful, concise, I would say very easy to read uh, and compelling work in which he lays out a lot of the critiques that he's rehearsed in his other works are sort of synthesized, very clearly placed. Uh, and then he does something I think is important, which is lays out what he thinks and a beautiful argument he makes. And he says, look, obviously he doesn't believe in religion. In fact, he gives one of the great critiques of Buddhism I've ever read, which is to say, yeah, the world is a world of suffering, fine. If we lived forever, then Buddhism makes sense. But we don't live forever. All suffering ends, so don't worry about it. To not suffer is to be a coward because there's so much that can be gained from suffering. And we'll see how this works in his ethics. But it's this great critique. Yeah, if you live forever, you don't want to suffer. That makes sense. But since you don't, what's a little suffering? It's going to end. Don't worry about it. Don't let it influence your judgment unduly. And so he says there are four cardinal human virtues that he thinks are crucial, that we should ponder. And the first one, there is no word for, so he comes up with this word, humbition, which I love. So it's humble ambition. And by humble, he means, look, we're limited, we're human, we're fallible, we live in a world that is contingent, things happen that are outside of our control. We don't understand ourselves perfectly, we don't understand other people perfectly. We need to keep this in mind. We need to say, you know, I'm not perfect, I'm not, I'm not the greatest of all time, I'm not going to be infallible. But we need to combine that with ambition, the desire to be the greatest versions of myself that I can be. That's the ambition. He says, if you only ever have small things that you want to achieve, then you are a small person. Because what you're doing is avoiding failure. He doesn't believe in avoiding failure. Like I said, the early quote should, should make that clear. Because failure is just a type of suffering. Don't worry about that again. He doesn't think you should worry about that. So humble, true, recognize what's your true condition, and then strive for whatever you want anyway. Not in an arrogant manner, not in an overweening manner, not because you're sure you're going to win, but because you're not sure you're going to achieve anything at all. A willingness to simply crash and burn. Make a big hole when you crash, right? Don't make a little crash, make a big crash. So he calls this humbition. Go for it, but 
don't expect to succeed necessarily, and it's okay if you fail and realize that it's a contingent, fallible world. Uh, he doesn't say this, but it's, it's, it's a phrase that I, I always like to, to think of, is it's just because you do everything right doesn't mean you're going to succeed. And just because you failed doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Right? They, they, they say this is common as sports notion, is when you win, you think you're doing things right, which can mislead you, and when you lose, you think you're doing things wrong, which can mislead you. Success and failure and correct performance and incorrect performance are not closely correlated in this world. It's, I know you've probably experienced this, right? Sometimes you think, I've done everything right, and it still didn't work. And then we think, well, I must have done something wrong. No, it's not that kind of world. There is no direct correlation. Loose correlation, sometimes, but sometimes not. So that's humbition. Uh, the second one is love. And love, he gives a very specific and I think useful definition of love. And he says, love means I desire for you, an individual, he doesn't think this can be universalized, he says it has to be for an individual, I desire for you the same way that I desire for me. So I want you to have what you want, what you wish, what you need. I want you to avoid what you don't want. Exactly the same way I feel about it for me. Not that I want the same things for you. But if you think you want something, I have the desire for you to get it as strongly as you do. It's a type of really powerful, direct empathy. He says, that's what love is. And he says, the problem is it necessarily more or less doubles your suffering. He says, this is, this is your, it's a suffering double mechanism. Kaufman never dodges things. He's not a dodger. It's one thing I like about his writing. Is he says, because if you identify that strongly with somebody, they're going to have their failures. They're going to have their struggles, just like anybody. And if we feel for them as strongly as we feel for us, congratulations, doubled your suffering. Doubled potentially your pleasures and joys, but doubled your suffering. Right? Parents and children, you can see this. The, the, the identity is so strong often, such a powerful bond, that they just increase the suffering. Oh, but they increase the joy. That's the key for Kaufman. Not just suffering. Suffering, but not just suffering. And then courage. Uh, well, let me go to honesty. We'll finish with courage. With honesty, he says, honesty is perhaps the rarest of these because people just don't want to know. If you think people want to know, you're wrong. <laughs> you're not being honest. He says, honesty is not knowing the truth. Honesty is really, really striving hard to find out the truth, Cap small t truth, not big t universal Kantian truth for which he has basically no use. Small t truth. We just don't want to know. If we fail, why did we fail? Basically, by the way, if you watch people in these circumstances, it's fascinating. They, they sort of break in roughly two groups. I'm not a big one on the binary thing, but in this case, I think there are roughly two groups. There's people who say, 
well, I must have done something terribly wrong. It's my own failing of my own self. They get down on themselves, and you really can't convince them to honestly look at it and say, you know, your failure may have had nothing to do with you. Conversely, with success. Your success may have had nothing to do with you. We don't want to know either of those often. Right? Or people who go, it must have been the outside world. The world is against me. My failure was like, well... It's, it's the old joke about the guy who keeps praying to God, oh God, oh God, can't you just let me win the lottery? Oh God, please let me win the lottery. Oh God, let me win the lottery. And God finally comes down to him and says, look, buy a damn ticket. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that notion that, oh, I, I didn't do anything wrong, nothing to do with me. Right? We don't want to honestly assess almost anything, almost any of the time. This is sort of Kaufman saying, he says, but if you have honesty, then you can admit things like, look, I don't really understand. I don't know. My knowledge is limited. I think this, but who? Why? I'm not sure. So let's put that in little brackets and call that a maybe. And the willing to honestly accept how much that we live with that is unknown, unexamined, uh, just unknowable in some instances, because we are limited. Our lives are finite. The world is big. The universe nearly infinite. Um, you know, that, that honestly, we should be able to accept that. But boy, there's, we just don't like it. And he says, so most of the time, most people have no interest in pursuing, uh, searching for knowledge, looking for truth. Again, small t truth. And he says, that, that is one of the problems something that limits us. And then finally, courage. Uh, and he says, look, courage is necessary for any of the other ones to function. You can't do any of the others without courage. It takes courage, but which he defines as to know fear and yet to proceed anyway. He says, it's not courageous to do something that you, you don't fear. That's not courageous, that's just fine. But to know and recognize your fear and to proceed anyway. In a thoughtful manner. Not in a rash, but just in a thoughtful manner. So it, it takes courage to say, ooh, this truth could be painful. To really ask somebody, well, so this happened. Be honest with me. We always say this, we almost never mean it. Be honest with me. What do you really think? But to mean it when you say that takes courage because we know the answer could make us, could be unpleasant, could cause us suffering. To love takes courage because to really commit to another person, we know, unless we're just self-delusional, which is also a great part of love, uh, uh, that there is the potential that they will cause us pain. In fact, it's almost certain I would say it is certain. It is a necessary component of it. And if you don't have the courage to suffer that pain, then you cannot love and probably can't really be loved. And then the ambition takes courage because you know you can fail. Egomaniacal drive says, I'm going to succeed. Nothing bad can happen to me. And no matter what happens, I say it's great. You know, that's, that's you know, uh, Cervantes, right? I mean, there's that sort of tilting at windmills aspect of it. But to say, 
as Beowulf says, by the way, one of my favorite passages, when Beowulf is going to go into the lake and, and kill Grendel's mother, or attempt to kill Grendel's mother, with two other knights. They killed the monster Grendel, which pissed off Grendel's mother, who comes and kills a bunch of people. And she's like, Beowulf, go get him. So Beowulf and two other knights ride to this lake, and the, the monster goes in the bottom of the lake, sort of a kraken-type thing, apparently. And um, the other two knights go, whoa, you know, Beowulf, we can... We can, we can kill this monster. We're going to go kill this monster. Right, right. And Beowulf goes, whew, I don't know. That is a scary monster. But we'll try. And at least we'll die nobly. And see, this isn't real. That's not what they wanted to hear. <laughs> this was not like a pep talk they were looking for. Like, wow, that is one scary monster. I think we're all going to die. See, but Beowulf has courage. He doesn't need to delude himself. He doesn't need to say, oh, well, that monster's not going to be able to kill me. He's like, oh, no, that monster definitely looks like the kind of monster that could kill me. That is a scary monster. But I'm going to fight it anyway. Not because I don't think I'm going to die, but because I want to try to kill it. Humbition. I know I could fail, but I'm going to try anyway. To do that, you need courage. And so Kaufman argues that to achieve this, you need Love, ambition, and honesty, none of which are functional without courage. Which, by the way, goes right back to the Greeks, who they often argued, many of the Greeks, not all, because they disagreed about everything, argued that the only virtue that mattered was courage, because without it, you couldn't do anything with any of the other virtues. So this is a very sort of Greek argument that he lays out here. And so with the life of Kaufman, um, you have the influence that we know, which is his work on Nietzsche, which took courage to do, by the way, because people were like, Nietzsche, really? Why are you doing this? Um, but it consistently, through his works, he fought the tenor of his times. He argued against many of the ideas that were popular. He, he tried to work against both the intellectual traditions with the academy and the popular cultural <laughs> ideas outside. Important to note that he played both sides of the fence, he was at Princeton his whole career, but he, he, he made a lot of money with the Nietzsche books, did the portable Nietzsche, edited all kinds of things. He was also a photographer. He was actually a noted photographer, traveled the world. Um, and this is, this is where I want to conclude, because this is how he died. He traveled in the 50s and 60s and 70s to sub-Saharan Africa, India, to all kinds of places in the world that were kind of a little dangerous and scary to go then. Um, and he ended up contracting in Africa um, basically a, a heart disease that killed him, caused his heart to explode when he got home. So he died fairly young. Was he 59, 60? I think 59 or 60. And if you look at his extraordinary work that he did, it's amazing. But he lived pretty much exactly as the quote suggested. He was outdoing and trying and striving and succeeding and failing and creating, I would say, a remarkable intellectual legacy. And much of which has been forgotten in the academy because he did not follow the rules of academic publishing and careerism, even then, and even less so now would, would he fit in. And his popular books, his more popular books, sort of run against the, often the sort of uh, narrow, bombastic works that we, we, we take for being intellectual works because they really are written at a very high but popularly accessible level. 
And so he's kind of fallen between two stools in a way. But what he's left for us is, is an, uh, a rich intellectual heritage that is accessible both in its content and his arguments, but even in the example that he set in his life. And so I can you know, hardly recommend any of these works. So there it is, Walter Kaufman, ladies and gentlemen, Forgotten Thinker. Yeah.